Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. So we're talking today about Robert Heinlein's book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and we talked a little bit about uh, how it's a book about revolution, revolution on the moon, a former penal colony, people are there on the moon now that are both free and former prisoners, and it's a book about revolution, and they are having a reason to want to rebel, but this whole process is what it takes to get the moon to rebel. And let's go directly into the novel itself so that we can start looking at the actual text, because there's a lot of things in the text (coughs) that are really relevant for us to discuss that are extremely political and they take time for analysis. So let's, let's go into it. Let's go to page 76 and 77. This is chapter 5. The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Now, Manuel is meeting with Wyo and the professor. And they are meeting after they had had a they'd been to an organization meeting for the revolution that had been broken up by the authorities and the vestiges of political authority that are there are sort of still tainted with the prison mentality because the mayor is called the warden and so on but what we have here is a discussion Wyo is part of the revolutionary groups uh, anarchists wanting to throw off the authority, the authoritarian authority of the of the warden and his police. And the professor is is a uh, sympathetic. And Mon, or as the computer, Mike calls him, or Manuel, our main character, is there for basically just going along with uh, why initially attracted to Wild because of her beauty. Alright. And now they're talking about it. Now the professor is talking on page 76 about the about the way revolutions are organized. And then Manuel changes it and says, no, there's a better way to do it. Okay. Now your height cannot be disguised and your pressure suit would be watched by someone not suspected of any connection with the warden. Most probably a comrade, professor. The, the professor dimpled. The trouble with conspiracies is is that they rot internally. When the number is as high as four, chances are that one is a spy. Now, as we read this, I'd like you to think about something. Think about how difficult it is for the Bush administration to contain leaks from information that's coming out, even though they really value secrecy tremendously. There's been no administration in, in recent memory that has valued secrecy more than the Bush administration. But look about how difficult it is. On the other hand, how many times do you find leaks coming out of, say, Osama bin Laden and his groups? So when you think about that comparison between the two groups, let's let's, uh, think about that and and continue reading here. While, she's the, uh, the pretty revolutionary, said glumly, you make it sound hopeless. Not at all, my dear. One chance in a thousand, perhaps. I can't believe it. I don't believe it. Why, in the years I've been active, we've gained members by the hundreds. We have organizations in all the major cities. We have the people with us. This is Wyo talking. Then the professor shook his head. Every new member made it that much more likely that you would be betrayed. Wyoming, dear lady, revolutions are not won by enlisting the masses. Revolution is a science. Only a few are competent to practice. It depends on correct organization and, above all, on communications. Then, at the proper moment in history, they strike. Correctly organized and properly timed, it is a bloodless coup. Done clumsily or prematurely, and the result is civil war, mob violence, purges, terror. I hope you will forgive me if I say that up to now it has been done clumsily. Wilde looked baffled. What do you mean, correct organization? Well, functional organization, continued the professor. How does one design an electric motor? 
would you attach a bathtub to it? Simply because one has one available. Would a bouquet of flowers help? A heap of rocks? No. You would use just those elements necessary to its purpose and make it no larger than needed. And you would incorporate safety factors, functions, function control design. And then Y.O. says, so it is with, rev- oh, I'm sorry, then the professor continues, so it is with revolution. Organization must be no larger than necessary. Never recruit anyone merely because he wants to join, nor seek to persuade for the pleasure of having another share your views. He'll share them when the time comes, or you've misjudged the moment in history. Oh, there will be an educational organization, but it must be separate. Agiprop is no part of basic structure. As to basic structure, a revolution starts as a conspiracy. Therefore, a structure (coughs) is small, secret, and organized as to minimize damage by betrayal. Since there will always be, since there, since there always are betrayals, one solution is the cell system, and so far nothing better has been invented. Much theorizing has gone into optimum cell size. I think that history shows that a cell of three is best. More than three can't agree on when to have dinner, much less when to strike. Manuel, you belong to a large family. Do you vote on when to have dinner? Bog no, mum decides. Ah, the professor took a pad from his pouch, began to sketch. Here is this, uh, the cells of, th- of a three tree. If I were planning to take over Luna, I would start with just three of us. One would be opted as chairman. We wouldn't vote, choice would be obvious, or we aren't the right three. We would know the next nine people, three cells, but each cell would only know one of us. It looks like a computer diagram, a ternary logic. That's what a uh, uh, one of them was saying, I assume it was Manuel. Then prof- Professor says, does it really? At the next level, there are two ways of linking. This comrade, second level, knows his cell leader, his two cellmates, and on the third level, he knows the three in his subcell. He may or may not know his cellmates' subcells. One method doubles security, the other doubles speed of repair if security is penetrated. Let's say he does not know his cellmate's subcells. Manual, how many can he betray? Don't say he won't. Today, they can be brainwashed. They can brainwash any person and starch an iron and use them. How many? Okay, then Manuel gets involved and says, "Well, six. And then the professor said, no, actually seven. He betrays himself, and so on. What do you see here? What's going on here? Well, I don't really understand that. Um, I sort of understand what he's saying, but then I don't think it would work. Because if people on the top level have people level down, and those people have their own subcells, the second level down people, let's say one of them gets, like, captured, then he's going to know who the other two people in his cell were, who the person above him was, and who everyone in his subcells are, and then what will happen is that they just will get the other people in a cell, and then it all falls apart. That is exactly what Manuel was saying after. Well, the thing is that... Uh, oh, in, in, a, in a later section that we're going to talk about just in a little while. But that's exactly right. Let's, let's get to that. So what you're actually doing is finding... You're actually being just like Manuel, and you're actually finding flaws in the logic. But what is, what's the basic idea that they're trying to do? Revolution is not something for the masses. It's the core of people who actually believe in it strongly enough where they would do something about it. Okay, now... I don't... Like smoky, shady rooms behind buildings. Yes, behind things. Now, when you're organizing for a political party, say for the Republican Party or for the Democratic Party, what do you do there? Do you go after cells or do you go after the masses? Masses. You go after the masses. So party organization in a democracy is totally different than revolutionary organization when you're actually trying to evade the authorities of the state. So the issue here is that they're having a discussion about how to evade the authorities, how to control things. Now what is the role of the masses? Excuse me. Very little. What's that? 
the masses have actually very little to do with it. Because, like, revolution is normally decided by uh, more specialised people. Like, the masses f- tend to flow with whichever way the tide's going. Like, there's an old paragon. Like, the m- very powerful mob is the IQ of its uh, dumbest member divided by the number of people in the mob. So they'll just, like, go with the flow. But it's, like, the people, the more intellectual people who think about it, like the shady dealers and backrooms, and that's the place where revolution is decided. That's very interesting. Okay, Adel, this is great. Uh, actually, the way, if I could use a, a few different words to describe exactly what you're saying, you're calling the masses, the masses pa- relatively passive in the organizational structure. They just go with the flow. They, they are there. They are conditioned. It's more of a stimulus response view of the masses rather than an intellectual view that they are in control of their own fate and they are deciding things. It's more of a stimulus response. But on the other hand, you said something very interesting, Agile, that they go with the flow, but they decide when they're ready, they go. They go with the flow. They actually do it. They, they decide. Now look at this one, these couple sentences here. Then at the proper moment in history, they strike. This is the revolutionary people. Correctly organized and properly timed, it is a bloodless coup. Done clumsily or prematurely, and the result is civil war, mob violence, purges terror. By the way, for those of you who see the spectacular movie, V for Vendetta, the Wachowski Brothers' new epic, it's very much along these lines. When done well. Now, but do you see here properly timed it's a bloodless coup what does that basically imply with regard to the masses that when they that just doesn't involve them because otherwise that would make it more dangerous like it should involve the masses to the least amount it definitely doesn't imply... I mean, it definitely doesn't... You're correct. It definitely means that you're basically not involving them in the organizational stuff. It almost seems like the more, like, disorganized a revolution is, the less effective it is, and the more, like, well, violence, it says, mob violence occurs and terror, and that's, like, when you get, like, the, like, repercussions of what you don't want to do. You fade away from your actual purpose for revolution. All this well, what would be the difference between a bloodless coup <coughs> from the perspective of the masses and <coughs> civil war? From what, 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 if you were described, if you were trying to describe a country, why would you be able to predict it's going to be a bloodless coup versus a civil war? There's <coughs> a lot of, like, the mass themselves are worked up about <coughs> it. Yeah, the masses themselves are like agitated, like there's a lot of protests and that kind of thing. Then it's probably going to end up as a civil war because then it's like the misorganized revolution where like the people themselves are deeply involved. Well, if it's you like not the masses aren't so up in arms, then it's probably more likely to be a bloodless coup. Yeah, if the masses are not yet up in arms but there's another way to look at it you're looking at it from the perspective of if the ar- if the masses are agitated then there's going to be a, a messy revolution and if they're not up in arms but more passive then it'll be a bloodless coup but there's another way to look at it preparation if the masses have been properly prepared except looking at it from outside we can't see whether the masses are prepared or not we can't know that without actually being there as an observer now, look at his last sentence. I hope you will forgive me if I say that up to now. It has been done clumsily. Meaning, most of the times you're absolutely right, Adel. They're not well prepared and it goes into a revolution. Let's take the Iraq War. When George Bush says we are going to go in there, and he and Donald Rumsfeld said, what about the Iraqi people? Are they ready for Change. They were ready for it, and what was? How are we going to be greeted? How are the American soldiers going to be greeted? With open arms. With with what? Open arms. Open arms, as liberators, they would be singing and dancing in the streets. Remember all that stuff? When it'll be a it'll be a piece of cake. It'll be a walk, a walk on the beach. 
We're going to go in and be received, received well. Well, let's go back to Robert Heinlein's. I hope you will forgive me if I say that up to now it has been done clumsily. Meaning, there's some level of preparation that needs to be done. Now, in the movie V for Vendetta, which I really encourage all of you to see, there's basically a year of preparation done for this revolution that the movie is about. But here he's talking about the very necessity to prepare the masses. Now, if you're not doing it openly, if you're not organizing openly like with a political party, then how in the world can you get them prepared? Obviously, what we did in Iraq to prepare them was idiotic. They were not prepared because it obviously clumsily broke out into a civil war. So we really messed up bad. So what actually kind of preparations are actually done from Heinlein's perspective that were not done by the U.S. in Iraq? Because obviously it wasn't a bloodless coup. It wasn't just getting rid of Saddam Hussein. It was something else. Go ahead. Heinlein's very much more for like you take certain influential key people and you bring them into your conspiracy. So like a community leader or some but like newspaper editor it's just talking theoretically now but if you bring them in then they're able to influence the masses without actually involving the masses so you can like lay the groundwork without actually having to create a huge clumsy machine you have a smaller more Okay, but now, Otto, what you're talking about now is bringing some new people in, influential people, but bringing some new that's people in. As well, though, with the cell system. Okay, that's what that's what the professor, but the, actually, the professor was brought in precisely because of that, because he was someone that had information that they could that could help organize it. But is that really how you influence the masses from Heinlein's perspective? Remember, the United States tried that. It's now documented, evident. We we paid a large number of Iraqi journalists, editors, and other people to put out a U.S. view of things in Iraq, in the newspapers in Iraq. It doesn't seem to have worked very well. What? Because they only went for the newspaper If you notice, I didn't say just in newspapers, I said community leaders as well. Community. And that's where the U.S. failed to touch. Because someone like Iraq, like the clerics, they're the real, they're the people who are the real influential people, because a lot of the people in the like outskirts where the like things mainly recruit are uneducated to the point where they probably can't read the newspapers. But what they can do is listen to like their village cleric talking. So those are the people you wanted to touch, basically, okay. not the. Now this is a good point that the U.S. Um, did not make the connections with the local clerics as much as they did with the local newspaper editors. All right, that's a very good point, because the clerics do have a closer connection to the masses. Actually, that was a major element (coughs) in the Iranian Revolution, when the Shah of Iran was ruling Iran from Tehran, the Ayatollah Khomeini was getting tapes of his messages out to the local Imams, the local clerics, all throughout the rural countryside of Iran. I mean, everywhere. And so the Shah of Iran, actually, his real rule ended at Tehran's borders. And Ayatollah Khomeini was actually very, very influential all throughout the rest of the country. What kind of a revolution did they have after years of sending, years of Ayatollah Khomeini being in Paris and sending those tapes out and then the Imams talking and, and conditioning the people? What kind of a coup did they have in Iran when the Ayatollah Khomeini took over and the Shah had to flee for his life? Was it a violent revolution? (coughs) It was a little bit earlier than your lifetimes. Uh, It was a bloodless coup. It was perfectly well designed. I mean, it was perfectly designed. It was a bloodless coup. The Ayatollah Khomeini flew in from Paris... And that was the end of it. And then the Islamic regime started over. Perfectly done. There was no fighting to convince. There was no conquering. There was no revolutionary war like 1917. There was no 
you know, Russian Revolution. There was no anything like that. It just was done. One government had to flee, and the other one just arrived by plane, and it was there. A bloodless coup. Everything was well prepared. Now, as Aldo was saying before, that the masses went along. Well, what does it mean to say the masses went along? They were prepared. They were ready for it. They wanted it. It was done. It was over. A bloodless clue. Done with exceptional skill. On the other hand, when the U.S. went into Iran, I take that back, when the U.S. went into Iraq, we have not yet gone into Iran, (laughs) but when the U.S. went into Iraq, you know, they said it was going to be a bloodless coup, almost. They said it was going to be a piece of cake. But the reality was they had done no preparation whatsoever. They had quarantined Iraq. They had put up sanctions. Only some oil supplies were getting out because the rest of the world needed it. But the masses weren't being addressed in any type of sympathetic fashion. In fact, they were being starved out. The sanctions against Iran were hurting... uh, Sanctions against Iraq were hurting the, the peasants more than anything else. The peasants didn't have any real connection to the West whatsoever. But on the other hand, in Iran, the peasants, the masses, had a very, very clear connection to the Ayatollah Khomeini. So when we actually went into Iraq, we thought it was going to be a situation where they were going to be ready for us. But no preparations had been done to make them ready for us. Well, how would you even go about that? I mean, that's a that's that's the point of the rest of the novel because we get to watch this revolution go in. That's exactly the right question. Well, the thing is that you couldn't do that in Iraq. I mean, there, there's no way. I mean, what language do they speak in Iraq? Arabic, of course. Okay, right now, the State Department snaps up every person who every person who graduates from a major university who speaks Arabic. Because they're in short supply. I mean, we don't even have enough people to decode, like, transmissions we intercept because we don't have enough people who speak Arabic. But, Jason... How are they going to foment revolution in Iraq? Jason, you're answering your own question. They didn't have any of the the human manpower there to do the thing. Well, I know, but but, but I... I can't even think of how you would how you would do it. I mean, fundamentally, there's no there's no uh, there's exactly. what, you're, that's what you don't go to war. Anymore. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Hey, Jason, you answered you're your right. Own you're question. Exactly right. Like, the the preparations for the Iraqi war would have been totally exactly what you just said. Meaning, we totally messed up in Iraq. We didn't even have language people. That's how bad it was. And we went in there thinking they were going to be liberators. We couldn't even speak their language. That's how bad it was. And that's why Iraq is burking into civil war. Look, I don't know what's going to happen in Iraq, but I I have in the past taught a course, Developmental Democracy, and I was teaching it when the Iraq war happened. And I always pointed people to an article that came out in an opinion piece by a former editor, an uh, opinion editor in the New York Times <coughs> by, called Leslie Gilb. And if you if you do a search in the New York Times on Leslie Gelb and get his opinion, right when the Iraq War said started, he said, you know, what's going to happen is really clear. The country's going to break into three parts, and we should just acknowledge that it's going to. And we should you know, this idea of keeping Iraq as one central place is none of the preparations have been done to be able to keep it that way. So it's it's just going to break apart. And when I was teaching developmental democracy, I remember clearly I was saying. I don't know what will happen in Iraq. We're putting a ton of inf- a ton of you know money and troops and stuff like that into it. But just from the level of in- developmental democracy, this is just when the invasion just started. Just on the level of developmental democracy, I don't know of a single developmental theorist that would predict that this would go well. That it, it really, from our perspective, I mean, we know how to bake a cake, and the ingredients are not there to bake a cake. That cake is going to flat, fall flat on its face. You're going to have a revolution. It's going to fall apart. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening now. So the thing is, and, and by the way, the State Department was not consulting people like myself in doing things like this. They were really, the, the Bush administration was not consulting developmental theorists. They were, they, they were, they were getting ready for war, and that's it. Go ahead. Like the Iraqi invasion wasn't really a revolution because revolution comes from within. From this within. Like external force trying to change the shape of it. 
like if things don't have rigidity that you can't force them to change like the forces have to change them from inside that, that's excellent Ardol it comes from, from within now that addresses that addresses the issue that we need to talk about if you cannot recruit from the masses because you're going against the government you can't recruit from the masses you have to organize surreptitiously well then how do you change things from within this is exactly what Adel's asking how do you change things from within if you're organizing in threes now the professor is coming up with a reason with an an organizational structure for how to do this but how do you what do these very few people do to change things from within it works on like a principle of exponential growth I mean same thing with like bacteria or with like computer viruses or just anything like that you have like you know a limited number of beginning components maybe even just one in this case one cell of three people and then it spreads and it just like now Jason I have to say that's exactly what Wyo was thinking but was the professor thinking that well no well see the thing is Wait, it doesn't let's let Tells you um, no, I was just disagreeing. <laughs> Go ahead. How were you disagreeing? <clears throat> well, he seemed more like it's kind of like they're on two extremes, basically, and he kind of seemed more like I don't even know because I'm actually kind of confused by all the different points, so it's hard for me to kind of explain it. But mm-hmm. um, it just seemed like he is more that you have to let people come to you. You can't, like, recruit them or anything. Like, you now, have to be- truly believe in the issue type of thing. Like he said right there. Uh, Page 76 and 7. Yeah. Never recruit anyone merely because he just wants to join or just, like, for the pleasure of sharing his views with someone else. Like, and, and also, listen to this. Uh, when the number is as high as four, chances are even that one is a spy. Yeah. So... They're not even trying to grow exponentially, as you said, like a spider growing out. You well, see, Jason? They, no, but but they they are. They're trying to make new cells. I wasn't talking about that one cell growing exponentially. I was talking about how they're trying to replicate, like a virus, like make new ones. They're All trying right. to make new cells. And but is that how you get like massive numbers? So you get millions of people, and everyone's ready? Or what is that? What the well, cells yeah, are? by the end, by the end of this book, book one, they have forty thousand people in cells all the way down to letter K or something. All right, yeah, that's actually true. I mean, but in the beginning, to get it, yeah, yeah. But to get it going, to get it ready, is the goal to get everybody? No, the goal is to get only certain people in key positions. Let's focus on what those certain people in key positions do. Because in the beginning, it's not a matter of adding new members. You have a small number of members. <clears throat> and what do those small number of members do to get the populace ready? They start doing little things. like they What started, do they do? Well, they started having the women walk by <coughs> in scanty skirts by the, by the soldiers. And they started having you know, people pro- protest a little harder against the troops, you know, checking their passports and just... All kinds of stuff like that. You just mentioned two incidences of agitation. Okay, so they're trying to agitate the populace. All right, but now listen. Let's take that one step further. If these small groups are trying to agitate the population, let's go back to Iraq. There were small groups trying to agitate the population. They What's that? There were small groups agitating the population, but they weren't going and actually the way that we wanted them to. Actually, let's let's focus on those small groups that are still agitating the population in Iraq. The U.S. is open. Our troops are organized. They're out in the open field. They're there. Who's, uh, who are we opposing? Guerrillas. That's what we like to call them, guerrillas. And how are they organized? They're not. They're gorillas. Isn't that fundamentally the underlying principle of gorilla warfare? Does that mean they're randomly just sort of skewed about No, no, no. It's not like like every man, woman, and child with a gun. It's just like like there's an organization to which these gorillas owe allegiance, I guess, but they're just, they're, they're not organized in the sense that, you know, like 
it, it's like the civil. I mean, it's like the Revolutionary War, man. You had the redcoats, and they all marched in straight lines and stood there to get shot. And then <laughs> the you know the Americans were hiding in tree in trees, rocks, and shrubs, and we sure weren't wearing red, and we were shooting them. It's the same sort of thing. It's like the U.S. Army goes in there and camouflage and drives. But you see, you there know, are many different groups in Iraq. Well, yeah. And but when the United States wants to capture them, we have a devil, a devil of a time even trying to find one. And when we find one, we can't really find the rest. The point is that the people that we are going after, the sometimes we call them insurgents, sometimes we call them terrorists, they're organized in cells. Now, what are those people doing? Are they recruiting the masses? Do you see them passing out flyers, knocking on doors? Are they recruiting the masses, as we are trying to do? No. What are they doing? They're probably, like, sneaking in at night. They, they probably speak Arabic, which is they, good. They speak the right language. They're probably, like, sneaking in at night, talking to people by candlelight, you know? Like, just a couple at a time, they're like, you know, come talk to these people. These people are like... Yeah, we want the U.S. out, and so then you know they they get it, they become their own little cell, or they now, Jason. Do you really think they're politicizing on that level? Mm-hmm. What do you see in the news? Probably they're not. They're probably like you they're know the infidels, them. or wait a second. Let, let, let they probably threaten them. Okay, they threaten them, and, and what else do they do besides threatening? They certainly threaten, but what else do they do? Probably couch it in terms of U.S. invasion. Well, what do you see in the newspaper? You see them doing stuff all the time. They're actually doing stuff. What are they doing? Destruction. They're really catch it in terms of destruction of holy sites, too. They're blowing things up. And what happens when they blow things up? People die. What's that? People die. People die, of course. They get... But what are they demonstrating? What are they demonstrating? They resolve to do something. What's that? They resolve to actually do something rather than... Like, the government in Iraq is sitting there wringing its hands. Like, oh, say that last sentence again. The government that the U.S. installed is sit, was sitting there wringing its hands, at least. Like, it's wringing their hands. To really, let, let me rephrase what you... Oh, go ahead, what was the last thing? They, they didn't do anything to address the like feelings of the people, and then these insurgents come along, and they're actually showing that they're willing to do something which makes them a more popular... You're, you're making it sound as if the insurgents are trying to win the hearts of the people. Mm-hmm. Is that really what they're doing? Trying to scare the people in terms of... I don't know. Because Actually, w- let's, let's, let's go on with what Hussain was saying. Trying to scare the people. What's the other thing that they're actually... How do you know either way? It's very clear. They're following a classic revolutionary uh, a, a pattern. You have, an, a, you have a, an outside force occupying a nation... And the first thing you do is you demonstrate to everyone that that outside force cannot do something. That it is impotent. And what is it that the U.S. can't do? It can't rule. It can't govern. That's exactly what was done in the Vietnam War. It wasn't that the Vietnamese just had overwhelming military force and were going to knock out the U.S., to win that war, they had to demonstrate that no matter what the U.S. did, they couldn't govern. When the British had to get out of India, it was that the Indians had to demonstrate to all the masses, unequivocally, that the British could not govern, that they couldn't do it. And what the Iraqi insurgents slash terrorists, whatever you want to call them, are doing, are demonstrating to all of the masses, not by knocking on their doors, hey, look, I think you should vote Republican, I think you should vote Democratic. No, they're not doing that. What they're doing is simply demonstrating in small groups, in small cells, demonstrating that the U.S. cannot govern. And when you get that demonstrated to a high enough level, you start persuading other people and more groups to start joining and start getting involved. Again, in these isolated, very difficult to trace cells, until you have the whole situation come apart at its scenes. And then what happens? When everything comes apart, what did we do in Vietnam? What did the Brits do in India? And what are we going to do in Iraq? Most likely, if things keep going the way they're going. We're going to have to get out. You know, Ali... Don't we want to get out? What's that? Don't we really want to get out? Just well, certainly now. Leave? Certainly now. But even uh, initially, we didn't want to stay there. No. That's not the way most people look at the... Many people look at the interpretation of the original invasion. With the, with the original invasion, the reason we went in, of course, was they had oil. 
And one of the first things for, for people on the ground to notice is that we were establishing something like 14 permanent military bases. I mean, we were building those bases up that we were going to want to stay. The idea is the uh, Bush administration has never said openly and consistently, we got to get out, we got to get out, we want to get out. We're just there to help set things up. Imagine what it would have been if the Bush, if President Bush got on the television every single week, once a week, with full translations broadcasting in Iraq and said, look, we're here, we just arrived, we don't want to stay. We'd like to be out in just a few months. Uh, the full Iraqi army, do not disband. Stay together as we march in. We will keep you all together. We will keep the, the army in, intact, but we are going to double your salary and pay you in dollars. Just stay at your post. Keep the army intact without letting them disband. Just literally say, double the salary and pay you in dollars. Just stay there as we watch in. And then, every week afterwards saying, now that we're here, trust me, we want to leave. We don't want to stay. We are not going to build military bases, not permanent bases. We just want to reestablish this country as a... Or as a but actually, we want to establish this country as an ideal Arabic democracy and then or Islamic democracy. And then we want to get out. And every week, reiterating, we want to get out, we want to get out, we want to get out. We don't want any American troops on your soil. To this day, this has never been said. To this day, it has never been said. Imagine if it had been repeated every week. The Iraqis would have said suddenly, hey, we have a very short window of opportunity. The Americans are going. Every week, they would have been reminded, we're going, we're going, we're going. They would have said, we've got to get our act together. The military would have stayed in place. You could have reorganized things on top. Condoleezza Rice is now saying thousands of tactical mistakes were done. Thomas Friedman has been saying of, of, uh, of uh, Donald Rumsfeld that that the level was uh, the level of incompetence was on the level was, was criminal negligence of, of that level that it was it was so badly bugged, uh, you know uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for bungled is that it no that's not bungled yeah bungled uh, so but the point is. The point is that the preparations were not done for the masses to have a bloodless coup. So there was nothing we could really do except get in and get out as quick as possible. Otherwise, you're going to get a revolution, which is what's happening now. Jason, go ahead. There's only been one like conflict that I can even think of that you know went fairly well, and that was the first Gulf War. Other than that... Every single conflict that the U.S. has ever been in, if you look back at it, was poorly handled. But let's Johnson look what, and Vietnam. Let's look World what happened War. with the first Gulf War. Did but, we stay? No, because... No, we didn't. We got out. Bush Sr. was smart enough to know, and he said at times, that there is no way out of Baghdad. Once you go in, you're there. There's no way out. There's no way out of Baghdad. George Bush Sr. was a very different president than George Bush, than George W. Bush. Very different. And like Jason, your previous point that it's always been bad not to like the the world was you say are uh, a incompetent, but they weren't actually at like the after treaty of World War One, Versailles was incompetent. World War Two that was very much better handled. Like if the US hadn't gotten involved, then the Germans would have been able to push through. Afterwards, they put, like focused so much on the rebuilding efforts that they were able to, within only, like, maybe a decade, like, set, reset Europe up to the level, to higher than the level it was before. While otherwise, it, the mm-hmm. economies have taken de- more than, like, three or four decades just to re-establish themselves. Well, in some places that's true, and in others it isn't. I mean, in Russia today, you can still see piles of crap from the German army coming through. Yeah, but Russia was not touched by the U.S. whatsoever. Well, right. Well, I, I think what I think. By, by the way, I, would, I should clarify one thing here. I, I do sound as if I'm really bashing George Bush, but I, I do this to be provocative on purpose because he happens to be the president. I, I assure you that when President Clinton was in there, I was doing all sorts of things to <laughs> be provocative with President Clinton. And if the Democrat goes in after 2008 and you were to come back to my classes, you will be swearing I'm a right-wing Republican. Whatever it takes to be provocative to bring these points out. But it's so easy because uh, actually th- there's so many mistakes that American presidents do, especially when we go into war or in some cases don't go into war. But in this particular case, the emphasis here that I really want to that I really want to stress is that Robert Heinlein is talking about preparing the masses. 
for a revolution and when they're perfectly prepared is a bloodless coup meaning the masses go along which is exactly what happened during the Iranian revolution okay and when the masses are not well prepared for example when Jason says we didn't even have language speakers we, we couldn't have done any preparations we had no influence in Iraq before we went in then it's 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 certain is, is almost as the sun is rising that you're going to have very difficult times. Okay, let's turn the page because let's go to page 78 and 79 and talk about Manuel's way to redesign the terrorist or the revolutionary cell. The prof said. Many th- revolutionary theorists have hammered this out, Manuel. I have such confidence in them that I offer you a wager, say, ten to one. And then Manuel says, Ought to take your money. Take the same cells, arrange in an open pyramid of tetrahedrons, where vertices are in common. Each bloke knows one in adjoining cell, knows how to send messages to him, and that's all he needs. Communication never breaks down because they run sideways as well as up and down. Something like a neural net. It's why you can knock a hole in a man's head, take a chunk of brain out, and not damage thinking much. Excess capacity, messages shunt around. He loses what was destroyed, but goes on functioning. What's Manuel talking about? If you're trying to describe in one sentence what he's, the basic theory, basic idea of what he's trying to do is, is, is what? Redundancy. What's that? Redundancy. He's getting some redundancy in there, but what? Why is? Why is the? What is the real purpose of this paragraph? What is Manuel actually trying to say? There's a better way than the standard cells. And what was wrong with the standard cells, as far as Manuel was concerned? That if you got one person knocked out of the cell, then they betrayed all the other people in their cell, and if those people were captured, they betrayed. I mean, you could just just if one point in the pyramid was betrayed, then you could lose the entire pyramid. Well, not the entire period, but a large section of it. A large section of it. A large section of it. Adil, you were saying? Yes, but I was saying that it's not the entire pyramid you lose, but if one person, like, turns, then you lose, like, seven people, they said. Yes, and now, with, with, with Manuel's new idea, he was saying you can organize it such that if there's going to be a betrayer, and there always will be betrayers, you lose fewer you lose less of the larger pyramid, which means that you can make the pyramid larger. Now, this gets back to what you were saying. How did they have these cells spread out all over the lunar colony? Actually, they all over Luna. They did it by organizing themselves so that, with this new principle that Manuel was talking about, so that when one cell collapsed, you didn't lose absolutely everything. You didn't lose a, a large section. You lost very little in the middle. That's how you can... So he's actually talking about making more, making it more efficient to spread with less vulnerability. Honestly, though, like a huge part of the success came from the presence of Mike. And the presence of Mike, the computer. Um, like, in all truth, like, the professor and Manuel set up a really, like, unique cell system but without him it would have collapsed yeah uh, Mike had a uh, enormously good way of communicating there is a parallel to Mike in the present world and how to communicate certain things now there's two types of communication the t- communication that goes from one cell member to that person's one contact in another cell okay now that if you have one contact in another cell, you don't know the other two members of this cell. So you really start limiting the extent of how much any one person really knows. When we're talking about the terrorist organization, uh, Al-Qaeda, they seem to be organized along cells that are very difficult to crack, meaning once you crack one particular cell, you really don't have much of an insight into the other cells. So they seem to have a high level of organization that's similar to what we have here. We call it loosely organized, and that the, that the organization is less well-structured than it was before 9-1-1. But what might actually be happening is Al-Qaeda may have reorganized itself, so it's less like what the professor was talking about, 
Whereas if you take one out, you get a whole bunch of the pyramid. And more like what Manuel's talking about, where there's communication that works both horizontally and vertically, but you take one and you don't get very much out. Now, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the United States, and you're looking at an organization that's organized the way Manuel is talking about versus an organization that's organized the way the professor is talking about. You just went from shooting ducks with a howitzer to shooting bears with a blowgun. Well, actually, shooting ducks with a howitzer. Well, I mean, shooting ducks with a howitzer is complete overkill, right? I mean, who needs a howitzer to kill a duck? Well, now all of a sudden you have this monstrous network of Al-Qaeda people and you have a blowgun. You, like, you get one at a time. Oh, I see, yeah. I was thinking more like a BB gun or a... a oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you just, you just have... But, I mean, before, I mean, you had the howitzer, you took all yeah. the ducks out of the sky at once. Now it's like you got, you know, this giant pyramid with all these little people in it and yeah. you have, like, excellent, a dark... Excellent, and, and what would be the response from the organizers in Washington with respect to how they would describe Al-Qaeda now? If they looked at it like this, what would they see on the surface... Would they see any type of organization that they would recognize as similar to them to their own? That's what best. they see and what they choose to see. Would also be a Okay. What, well, what would they see though? Would they? See, what, they would have a few people captured. At best, they'd no. see cells. And those people would hardly know anybody, right? They'd hardly know anybody. At best, you'd, you'd see something that would appear to someone who was capturing it as probably nothing, like four people who were their own little... Um, even if not that, they'd probably see more as, like, the death was that, like, the organization's breaking down, little communication. Very good, Otto. So, from the perspective of Washington, it would look as if Al-Qaeda was breaking apart. It would look as if it's breaking down. It would look as if they were as if the U.S. was winning the war, that, the, that Al-Qaeda doesn't have a structure. But in reality, if they're just simply reorganized, it could be even more deadly than before. What is the evidence in Iraq to suggest that Al-Qaeda is actually still there and not broken down? There's still resistance. The resistance. I mean, they're fighting like hell. So it's not just the Iraqi insurgents, yeah. but the Al-Qaeda Do we know collaborators. The Iraqi, Go ahead. Do we know the Iraqi insurgents have any connection to Al-Qaeda? Or could they just be a resistance? No, there's two different... There's actually multiple different groups. The, uh, the Al-Qaeda people are separate from the Iraqi insurgents, and sometimes there's quite a bit of hostility between those particular groups. The point is, though, that they do have these Al-Qaeda people. What's more interesting is that in the Gaza Strip, the Hamas is now saying there is the... Pre- and... and uh, uh, um, Mahmoud Aboud, is, uh, did I pronounce his name right? Uh, the, the leader of, the, of, the, of Fatah and the Palestinian Authority is, uh, is saying that there is now a presence of Al-Qaeda, an organized presence of Al-Qaeda, that they cannot find and trace, but they can detect in Gaza. Now, does that sound like an organization that you've chopped off at the head that doesn't really work well anymore? If they're already in Iraq, and and wherever they can possibly squeak in, they're there? Just what they need, Al-Qaeda in Gaza. Well, they have it, and apparently it's not a a small small thing. It's something that uh, Mahmoud Abbas Abbas has been talking about. What was that? I only have to take with a pin of salt. I can, I, like, the idea of Al-Qaeda has now become this huge, like, uh, not, it's like a monster, like the boogeyman under your bed. Like, everyone is so, like, the 9-11 attacks were so devastating that people are so scared that just, you, at one point, there's going to be people who just use their name just to get power to show that they're trying to do something because like Hamas needs to have some kind of international support yeah because like yeah. Israel doesn't isn't happy with them and <coughs> Israel is the more powerful of the two yeah. so they need to have like if there's Al-Qaeda then the international community is like we need to support the Palestinian mm-hmm. government so they're not taken over okay. so that could like I'm not saying that is what happened but it's but that could be what happened yeah what, that, that's a good point you know, one of the things that you want to be able to be alert to is the idea that if there is another major terrorist attack that's done by Al-Qaeda, say, what is the U.S. probably going to be saying? Just imagine it. If Al-Qaeda has shifted from an organization that's organized like the professor is talking about to an organization that's organized like the way Manuel is talking about, then what you'd expect coming from Washington is exactly what they're saying now. 
which if we have severely disrupted it, the organization is far less potent than it was, and then it will be followed by a major terrorist attack. And then and then, then what will happen is the Congress will be screaming, saying, a complete collapse of U.S. intelligence has occurred again. That's exactly what you'd expect. So we don't really know what al-Qaeda is doing. But the evidence, based on how well they're doing in Iraq and their presence now in Gaza and in other places, I mean, there's a huge resurgence of them in, in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. The evidence is that they are still somehow connected, but in ways that are much more difficult for us to detect. And so what we see is less of an organization, and we interpret that as being, well, we must have been, you know, we must, we must have disrupted them terribly, and now they're on the run. When in reality, they just, like a chameleon, shifted form. And if we think that we've got them, but in reality they've shifted form, are they more deadly or less deadly? More deadly. Much and more the, deadly. The same thing happened in, uh, in the uplift war when the bird things could find the people because they had cloth that had been manufactured in factories where the bird people were. Mm-hmm. And then the humans quit wearing the cloth and the bird people couldn't find them with their senses anymore. And all of a sudden the humans came a lot more deadly because they could lay traps with this cloth that was you know, going to draw them there and then they could yeah, attack yeah. them. So yeah. it's the same sort of thing. It is similar. Okay, let's go over to page 79. And... Uh, Manuel is ex- explaining a little bit more about his new way of structuring things. Now watch it work, Cosmere. Level 3 finks out and betrays Charlie and Cox in a cell. Baker above him and Donald, Dan, and Dick in subcell, which isolates Egbert, Edward, and Elmer and everybody under them. All three reported redundancy necessary to any communication system, but follows but follow Egbert's yell for call. He calls Ezra, but Ezra is under Charlie and is isolated too. No matter... Ezra relays both messages through his safety link, Edmund. By bad luck, Edmund is under cock, so he also passes it laterally through Elright, Enright, and that gets it past burned-out part, the burned-out part of the of the network, and it goes up through Dover, Chambers, and Beeswax to Adam in the front office, who relies down the other side of the pyramid with lateral pass on E for easy level from Esther to Egbert and on to Ezra and Edmund. These two messages up and down not only get through at once, but in a but in a way they in the way they get through, they define to the home office exactly how much damage has been done and where. Organization not only keeps functioning but starts repairing itself at once. Now this is a complicated piece of text here, but basically we're running out of time, so let me just summarize a little. What he's basically talking about is with this parallel or actually triangular redundancy what you're actually getting is when people report back because they can only go through their one single contact that they have by the time they have to report back and it eventually all gets back to the central command but when it gets back it gets back in such a pattern that you know the entire section that's been taken out and in the process of taking that out, the repair has already begun. That means you sort of start getting an, a Borg-like network, the Borg in Star Trek, where the repairs start almost instantaneous because of the need to reestablish more, uh, reestablish communication networks and isolating which exact sections get knocked out. So when you knock out a section, the information gets back to the people in control in such a way that they have relatively full information of what's been done, allowing the people in the, in the control to do the reorganization that's necessary. Now, let's, um, let's think about this just for a second. Here you have a situation in which we don't know, we really do not know what Al-Qaeda is doing. But we see them on the surface being able to organize and pop up. If you were betting people and you saw on the surface their ability to sort of pop up into Gaza to reestablish themselves in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Does anything happen without effort? It's an old Newtonian principle. Nothing happens without something doing it. So, if you were a betting person, what would it make it more? What would make it more sense to bet on that Al Qaeda has actually reorganized itself in a more deadly fashion, or? That the U.S. is—I I, I hate to be making sort of an obvious question here—but 
or that in fact the U.S. is is winning the war on terror. We should what? put down odds on this. We should go find the boogie quick. Well, what would be necessary from the perspective of the t- the terrorists to what is their purpose? What are they trying to do? What well, do they need to do with their cells? Well, do they need to convince the masses, or what? Well, I mean, in addition to getting their cells to work, they got to convince people that they don't exist. I mean, they got to convince the U.S. that they don't exist. Well, what is the purpose of the cells? We're getting back to the very beginning of the class. What are they trying to do? They're trying to... What is their the purpose? What's that? Maybe the chance of betrayal. They're trying to agitate people for revolution. Wait a second. Ch- the purpose of cells is to limit the... Like chance of betrayal. Okay, chance of betrayal. Well, that's sort of the defensive mode of the cells. But what is their purpose to for agitate existence? people to prepare them for revolution? To prepare them for revolution, but to agitate just the people? To what? agitate everyone. To agitate, agitate the world. Agitate, agitate everyone in, in contact with their revolution. <coughs> okay, but what did we say in the very beginning of class? What did Gandhi do? What did the Indians do? What did the what the Vietnamese do? Oh, they had to, so they had to show weakness. Yeah. Go ahead, Hussein. You were going to say. Yeah, showed that the government in charge or the country in charge was couldn't govern anymore. That they were that the go- that the, those incapable. in charge were incapable. When you have a revolution that's going to happen, you have to show that the established power can't can't function. You have to convince people that the established power isn't something to be feared any longer. That they can act against it. And how do you do that? You show that they can be uh, attacked. You can show that they can be attacked at will, that they can't govern, that they can blow things up right in front of their faces. You can blow up major installations, that you can do anything you wanted. In the V for Vendetta movie, the issue was it's a spectacular movie to see in this context. And I'm not giving away the end of the movie because it's announced in the very beginning of the movie what they're going to do. But the, 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 the trail to the end of the movie is spectacular. It's to blow up the Parliament building in Britain. And the idea is announcing one year in advance that's what we're going to do. And sure enough, when it actually happens, the people are prepared all along the way. But the issue here is... And I haven't given away the end of the movie because the end of the movie is is announced again in the beginning of the movie. So you know that's coming, but the trail is really interesting. The point is, you make it seem to the public that the people in power cannot govern. And that's how you prepare the people. The the Shah of Iran was shown to all the people that he could not govern, that he was impotent politically. And so when the Ayatollah came in, the people were ready. It was essentially a bloodless coup. What the Al-Qaeda people have to do now, if they're fighting the United States, their purpose to fight us is to make it difficult for us to establish any type of semblance of order. Now, that's our challenge. That's the challenge of the administration. That's the challenge of the American government, to show that we can establish order. And the Al-Qaeda people, they don't have to convince the masses. They can pick up the pieces afterwards. The only thing they have to do is to disrupt our ability to organize, to govern. And that just means throwing in suicide bombers from place to place, bombing at will, randomly. That's this agitation that we have. That's a very difficult enemy. That's a very difficult enemy whose only job is to show us that we can't govern. We have the much more difficult task to show that we can govern. It's like the Brits. The Brits had to demonstrate to all of India that they could continue to govern. The Indians simply had to show to the Brits that they couldn't. The job of showing that the established power can't govern is easier than the job of showing the masses that you can govern. Because to build an organization that's open is much more difficult than to build an organization that's secretive, that works out of cells. Do you get the idea? It's harder to build an open, big organization than it is to build a cell-based organization. So if on the level of terrorism, the terrorists have an advantage that the U.S. doesn't have, that we have to combat in order to uh, ultimately succeed. On the other hand, the terrorists' advantages always work to them, like the IRA. What's that? Terrorist advantage doesn't always ensure their success. For example, the IRA was 
like it was the most organized, most deadly terrorist organization in the world. But That's excellent, excellent point. The IRA. We have to end now, but let me just make one comment about the IRA because that's such a good point. How do you beat a terrorist organization? It has to be done through exceptional, exceptional skill, and there's going to be clumsy stuff. There's going to be really stupid stuff that gets done along the way. And each time you do something stupid, it helps a terrorist organization. But how do you beat a terrorist organization? You have to show that you can govern. You have to establish. And what did the British do? I mean, they were there. They were in Ireland. This is in Iraq, where it's on the other side of the planet. We're not even there. The Brits, right there, right in Ireland, I mean, it's part of the nation, had to establish that, through basically overwhelming force, that they could govern. And then for, the lo- and for a long, long, long period of time, how did they defeat the IRA? In one year, two years, three years, like the Iraq War? You're talking ages. <laughs> ages. For a long, long, long period of time, you eventually have to settle things down. Another parallel? How do you... How do you defeat? How did the Spaniards beat the Basque, the uh, the, the Basque, the Basque separate uh, the the terrorist movement that's running out of the Basque region in Spain? I mean, they wanted to uh, have a you know a, a separation from Spain. They wanted to basically a revolutionary movement within their uh, a secessionist movement within their organization. It takes a long time, decades of work slowly establishing governance, slowly establishing that you can work, that you can competently govern, you can properly govern, and then the terrorist organization eventually gets worn out. So basically you're talking about long-term wearing out of a terrorist organization. You're talking the long run. You have to stay there a long, long time to do it. Which, uh, if you think about it, makes our task in Iraq much more difficult because... If you take that analogy all the way to the Iraqi situation, the only way we could win in Iraq is to stay there for a very, very long time. It's a very difficult, very difficult set of choices. Now, by the way, I don't know if all of this is correct, of course, but these are just points to think about. All right, now we will continue. Make sure that by Tuesday you have the rest of the book finished so we can get right into the heart of it, okay? Great.